0: Okay, good morning, everybody. Uh, We're nearing the end of what has been a fantastic series on the call to holiness. Now, if you've heard any of the other talks, you know that you can relax. You don't have to panic because the definition of being holy is not about being perfect, which is great to hear. Um, It's about being set apart, set apart for God, set apart for what he has for us, uh, to be in the world but not of the world and the same as the world, to be different. Now, Mark introduced the series a few weeks ago, then I talked about hope, and then Denise got up last week and, talked about, uh, and did a wonderful job talking about um, how we're different in times of trouble. And she uh, demonstrated that by beating her husband on stage. Uh, um, I, I don't know how they've been since, but bless them. Uh, <laughs> uh, today, I want to talk about something different as well. I want to say that one of the things that sets us apart as followers of Jesus, uh, as Christians, is, is how we act. Now, remember, this isn't about being perfect, but there's a difference in how we are and how we act. So, a few years ago, I went out for lunch with um, some colleagues. We went to Pizza Express in Radlit, and, uh, and we were there just chatting about it, you know, whatever it was. And I was sitting, and uh, kind of behind some of my colleagues, there was this big table of family, um, and they were all buzzing about. But there was this one lady, I think the mum of the family, and she looked like she was having a panic attack. She was starting to get really agitated, she was starting to get really nervous, she was starting to get quite stressful and anxious, and, uh, and some of the family were just going, oh gosh, this, oh, not again, and they were just kind of walking away, and some of them were looking like they were panicking and really not what Shorts would do. So I, I finished the conversation I was in with my colleagues, and I stepped up and I went around and I sat with this lady and I said, look, it looks like you're having a panic attack. Is, is that right? And she's like, yes. And I said, look, you know, bless you. My, my mom actually went through a phase where she was having panic attacks. I really feel for you. It's so stressful. So everyone, would you mind if I just prayed for you? And she's like, okay, yeah. And so, uh, so I laid my hand on her shoulder, and I just blessed her. I prayed for her in the name of Jesus. And then it was the realization the whole family was Jewish, because they all went, oh. <laughs> so I just blessed her, and I prayed for her in the name of Jesus, and I just spoke softly to her and calmed her down and just loved her, basically, and she started to relax, and it was just wonderful just to see her start to take a deep breath, and, and the family were kind of starting to relax as well, and, and uh, they're like, you're Christian, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, and they're like, thanks, you're done. <laughs> so anyway, I went back to my table, and I sat down, and it was so funny to sit with the colleagues, and they were like, so. Did anyone watch Love Island last night? (laughs) Um, You know, people may find us unusual uh, in our actions, strange even, but they won't deny that there's something different about us and how we act. Now, I love this. We may be criticized for what we believe, but we should be famous for how we behave. We may be criticized for what we believe, but we we must be famous for how we behave. It was the same with Jesus. He had lots of critics, lots of people trying to catch him out. Whether it was paying taxes, fasting, obeying the Sabbath, or deep theological debates like the resurrection or healing. But at each turn, he had people who disagreed with me. He had trolls, basically. But despite that, he was well known for showing mercy to prostitutes. He was hanging out with tax collectors. He was healing the sick. He was accused of using the powers of Satan. And yet he was famous for showing compassion. He caused disgust when he accepted the worship of a woman who threw herself at his feet and washed them with expensive perfume. But he was adored for his kindness. He was well known for how he behaved, even if he was hated for what he actually believed. But you know, Jesus didn't come and didn't declare that he had the best explanation of God. He claimed to be the best explanation of God. He didn't claim to have the best explanation of god he claimed to be the best explanation of god john 17 says this i have brought jesus said this i have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you have given me to do and we would automatically presume that means the cross but this was before the cross and so when he says i've finished the work you've given me to do he says i've done everything i can to make you my father as personal as i can do and then one of his followers says show us the father just show him show us what he's like and jesus said if anyone has seen me He has seen the Father. You've seen me, so you've seen God. He didn't claim to have the best explanation. He came to be the best explanation of God. You know, Jesus demonstrated who God was like, but also whom God liked. We've all heard the sayings that God is love and God loves everybody. But where did those ideas come from? You see, Greek and Roman gods, the gods they believed in, the gods that they saw to be real, they didn't love anyone. They toyed with people, if anything, and with mere humans. They didn't require anyone to care. But if you pleased them, if you did get on their good side, if you did do something that entertained them, they might bless you financially or with health. So, logic says, if you were healthy, if you were wealthy, and if you were a man, of course, then you were considered to be favored by God. It was just the logic, the presumption. If you were healthy, if you were wealthy, you were favored. Whereas poverty illness, were all considered to be a disfavor, a sign of that, that your God was punishing you for something you did or something your parents did. So if you were poor, if you were unhealthy or something was wrong, you were being punished by your God. Even the Jewish system had adapted this idea and used its laws to keep classes, widows, orphans, lepers in their place. They would ban them from coming in the city, tell them to stay outside. They would take away all rights and authority. They would always remind the populace that God favored the powerful, the healthy, the wealthy. When you have a culture that's based on this, the idea of compassion is not only unnecessary, it's foolish. You see, why would you spend yourself for someone who's being punished by God? Surely you wouldn't want to get in the way of God. Instead, you conclude that the poor are getting what they deserve, the sick are getting what they deserve, and the rich are getting what they deserve. And that's the logic that drove the, the time in which Jesus walked. But then along came Jesus. He introduced this revolutionary idea that God loved everyone. Jews and non-Jews, male and female, rich and poor, slaves and free. Everywhere he went, he elevated everybody's dignity. He showed that people had intrinsic value. Not because of what they had. Or what they produced, or what they could give society, or what their life was like, but because they were human. They were made in the image of God. For the first time, people were elevated in such a way that made no sense to Jews, to Greeks, or to Romans. Take this, for example. You know, Jesus talked about the the trilogy of lost things the lost ring, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And in all of those, he basically says that God goes after the sinners to get them, not to get them back for what they've done, but to win them back. Although he taught on the Sermon of the Mount. And Jesus taught us not to hate our enemies, but to pray for them and do good. And this is where it was first introduced the idea, the radical idea of doing good for someone who may never be able to do good for you. And then also the widow's might. You know, him and his disciples sat in the temple and they watched this long queue of people, all very wealthy, very dressed up, and then in the midst of this queue was an elderly lady, clearly a, 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 an impoverished lady, one who was not doing well, bent over and everything, and she was joined this queue, most people were going, oh gosh, she's getting punished by God for something. But Jesus watched her, and he watched her approach the, uh, the offering and drop something in, he could barely hear it. And then he turned to his disciples and said, you see that lady? She's the richest one in this temple at this moment. He totally transformed their minds, totally transformed their teaching, their understanding, and this kind of perspective was a completely different way of looking. It set him apart, it set us apart from anything we have heard before. But what he taught was nothing compared to what he did, how he acted. You know, at the time, according to Jewish rules, being clean was a, a kind of akin to being holy. You see, you were told not to touch anything that could defile you. Otherwise, you would be unclean in the eyes of God. But Jesus comes along and says, no, holy. To be holy is different. To be holy is to get your hands dirty. You see, everyone knew you don't touch sick people, lepers, or the tormented. Because they were cursed and contagious. But Jesus would touch them. And not only would he not get ill, but they would get well. And what about Matthew, the tax collector? I mean, it was utterly scandalous for Jesus, a rabbi, to come and talk to him. It was scandalous to ask Matthew to follow him. And then it was when he went to, he said, we're going to go to his house with all these dodgy friends. I mean, that's just mental. That's just crazy. Or the centurion. The very person that was punishing, them, that was making their life hell, The centurion comes to Jesus and asks for a favor that his paralyzed servant would be healed. Jesus doesn't turn away in disgust and say, well, I'm sorry, but look how you treated my friends. I'm not interested, thanks. He turns to him and he commends him for his faith and says, okay, your servant is healed. And that very moment, the servant was healed. And then Samaritan woman at the well. You know, Samaritans were the most disgusted of all people. The Jews and the Samaritans were kind of half-related uh, but the, the Samaritans had kind of intermarried with foreigners and deliberately abandoned and dishonored their family and their faith. They were to be ostracized. They were to be considered defiled. They were despised. They were unclean. We wanted nothing to do with them. And yet Jesus meets the Samaritan woman of the world, the dirty Samaritan woman, the, the thing that anything she touches would be horrible. And he says to her, I want you to drop your Samaritan bucket into your Samaritan well, so that I can drink your Samaritan water. No wonder they thought Jesus was mad. You know, talking about Samaritans, Jesus gave an absolute great example of not just who to value, but how to value them. If you've got your Bibles, it'll come up on the screen as well, but if you've got your Bibles on your phone or you've brought them, it's in Luke 10 from verse 30. I can see you all reaching for your Bibles, yes. <laughs> it's so fun. Uh, I found myself actually drifting back to my paper Bible. Can you believe that? I love my phone. I love the iPad and all that other stuff. But actually reading the Bible, I just love picking up the paper Bible. I've gone old school. Um, anyway, side note. Um, okay, so one day a religious expert comes to Jesus and presents him with a question. He says, what must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, you're the expert. Tell me. And so the expert replies, well, I guess it's to love God 100%. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus agrees and says, yep, you got it. Now, if you can do that, you'll be fine. But the expert, this is a bit broad. He doesn't really know if he's succeeding and how he's doing. So he asks a follow-up question. He says, well, okay, just narrow this down slightly for me. Who's my neighbor? And this leads Jesus to tell one of the most famous stories. A man, he says in verse 30. And this is implied to be a fellow Jew, otherwise the expert wouldn't care if it was Samaritan or someone else. The expert would have just walked him past. This is implied to be a Jew. A Jew was going, um, on the floor, sorry, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levi, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed on the other side. You see, this would have been a normal reaction. There was nothing wrong with this, actually, based on what I've just said. For for them to walk across the road, to avoid this situation, that's a normal reaction. Everyone's going, yep, I would have done the same. See, they might have been avoiding the same danger, the robbers that got this guy in the first place, or they might might have thought him dead and therefore defiled. So their normal reaction was about keeping safe and clean. But a Samaritan, a defiled, despised, unclean Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where this man was, and when he saw him, he took pity, compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for all the extra expense that you may have. See, it's immediately clear that this Samaritan doesn't react in the same way. Instead, he acts. You see, he's not like many of us. His reaction isn't to ignore the man or toss him some change. He doesn't say someone else will come along and do something just, you know, just stay out of the way, you know, someone else has got this. He doesn't react in that way. He chooses to act. You see, to react takes a moment, but to act requires consideration, commitment, even sacrifice. See, he sacrifices, this Samaritan sacrifices his safety and his time. He sacrifices his oil and his wine. That wasn't meant to rhyme, but it's awesome. He sacrifices his donkey and his money. He sacrifices his reputation and the expectation of whether this man will take advantage, let alone pay him back. He doesn't react. And walk past, he chooses to act with what he has. You see, it's at this point that Jesus asks an absolutely killer question to the expert. He says in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? You see, Jesus redefined the word neighbor from someone who is like you, someone who lives in your neighborhood, someone who you, know, you can relate to, to someone who has a need that you can meet but more than that, Jesus does something absolutely astounding. He cleverly redefines the entire question. You see, the expert said, love God 100% and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, in the, exp- in the story, the religious expert was not the man walking down the street. If it was, this whole story would have been about if you see someone, you know, would, you have comp- would you have pity for a stranger? Would you help? And of course, the answer would have been no. That wouldn't have been the right thing to do. End of story. But you see, Jesus told the story with the expert as a Jew on the floor, which forces the expert to consider how he would like to be treated if he was that one that was beaten up and left for dead. If he came across some bad luck, how would he want someone to react to him? Would he want them to cross the road for their own safety and purity? Or would he want someone to act and tend to him with what they could offer, whoever they are? You see, which one, one of these was a good neighbor? Was the neighbor, Jesus asked? Verse 37, and the expert grits his teeth and absolutely begrudgingly replies, the one who had mercy on him. See, he can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He's so disgusted, but there's no way of answering the question other than that person. Jesus told him, go and do Likewise. Go and act how you would like to be treated. Treat everybody with the same intrinsic value that you would want. That is absolutely mind-blowing for the time. But you know what was wonderful? After three, three and a half years, the disciples really got it. You see, the first problem the church faced, the first thing that they ever encountered as an issue, something to really wrestle with, was the fact that Peter, John, and Andrew, those who spent so much time with Jesus, would not stop taking care of the widows and making sure that everyone had enough food. That was the first problem they encountered. You see, we get it, the guys would say. We get it. You you want to be clear that nothing is more important than nothing nothing is below you. You want to be like Jesus, We des- but we desperately, desperately need you to teach and preach. Because you saw Jesus, you're eyewitnesses. Will you stop doing that so you can do the thing that only you can do? It actually says in Acts 6, will you stop waiting on tables and get someone else to do that instead? You see, they had to pry their hands open. After three and a half years of watching Jesus Washing and wash feet and take away any excuse, they finally got it that that was their place to serve, to love, to embrace, to come alongside of anyone and make sure they had everything they need. The great disciples, the great apostles, were forced to stop doing that in order to do the thing that they were called to do. But do we in Vineyard Church in 2018 get that? I mean, a better question would actually be do I get that? Do I understand it? You see, a few of us were at a conference, I think it was last week, I can't remember now, um, with Tim Keller. I mean, it was just wonderful to meet him. You know, to see Tim Keller in person. I won't say I met him. Um, I did walk past him, though. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Tim Keller did this conference on um, a great, great preacher about identity in Christ in a gender and sexually fluid world. And a great Christian called Luke who has chosen celibacy, Um, after reading the Bible and making a choice, he chose celibacy and said this amazing thing. He said, if we're calling for sacrifice in a gay person's sexual desires, we must not be hypocritical. We should apply that sacrificial attitude for all areas of life. You see, the Bible tells him that he should sacrifice for holiness, but he wasn't just saying, it's not just that one area, it's every area of my life. For God is worthy, and shouldn't we all do the same? It was in that moment that God just gently whispered into my ear with a megaphone. He said, Richard, if this young man is willing to give up his desires to follow me, what have you given up? I know what you gave up 15 years ago, but what have you given up recently? I grabbed hold of John's hand, and I was sitting next to me, and I was like, help me. It was a deep question. It was a hard question. You see, ouch. You see, this is the test. If we react to things, it doesn't cost us. If we ignore someone, we may feel guilty for a moment. Or we may give a few pounds and feel like we've done something good. But if we act, it costs us. Like the Good Samaritans, there's sacrifice. There's a cost to play. Now, here's one of the best lists you ever seen in a, in a preaching talk. Okay, A list of 10 things that it will cost you to follow Jesus. Are you ready for this? This is so exciting. I can see the smile on your faces. All of you have got notes out. You're ready? Yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. Okay, and now I'm going to guess for most of you, you're busy people. You have demanding jobs full of families, full-on families, and groups that you're probably committed to. And so if you were to act, the first thing it would cost you is your precious time. And time is a precious gift. It's one of the most precious gifts that we have. It's finite, but it's so important. Um, you know, Tara was on the bus to town the other day. And uh, she saw an elderly man get on. He, was, he lives on our road. And uh, she could see that he had Parkinson's disease. He was shaking. But then he was starting to get agitated. And we found out later this thing called Parkinson's freeze. Basically, he's trying to move, but he can't move. And, and so he was just shaking and getting overwhelmed. And most people on the bus were kind of sitting on the other side of the bus. And they were kind of trying to ignore him. Or they were just looking really concerned. But no one was doing anything. But you know Tara got up and she walked across and she sat next to him. She said, are you Okay. And he was able to explain the problem. And, um, and so she said, okay, let's just calm down. Where do you need to go? You can go to the doctor's? And so Tara basically sacrificed her plans for that day, sacrificed all the things, the shopping, the, the library, all the things that she had planned for that day um, with the kids, and said, okay, we're just going to take this guy to the doctor's. And so she accompanied him on the bus, walked with him, and then even made sure he got home. You see, to be a, crush, a follower of Christ means that we enter into moments where it's going to cost us time, where it's inconvenient, but it's the most precious gift you can give. And for that guy, I mean, she ended up meeting his wife, and she was just so, thank you. Thank you so much for looking after him. He just keeps on escaping from the house. But you brought him home safely. Thank you. (laughs) it's genuinely. Um, (laughs) Anyway, the second thing it will cost you is energy. Time, energy. You see, this guy, Jason, was 26 when he shared how his mother had died when he was just 11. The following year, his brother committed suicide, leaving just him and his dad. And then his second year of college, his dad killed himself too. Jason said, I just got tired of hurting. I just got tired of hurting. So he started doing drugs. Who wouldn't? Would you pick a better way of comforting yourself after that? He did not do drugs. Drugs meant no job. No job meant homelessness. Jeff, a famous American comedian, was introduced to him and was by the homeless shelter, um, the boss there. And he said, to, the, the boss basically asked him, he said, would you lead a small group with Jason and a few other guys? Now, Jeff, a famous comedian, does lots of things, but he felt massively underqualified for this group. Massively out of his depth. And absolutely no time. I mean, he was on tour all the time. But... He was aware that people just needed a place to gather, a place to belong, someone to speak into their lives. So he said something amazing, I love this. He said, until you've had three hold your breath and jump moments, you haven't really lived. Ten years on, he's still meeting with that same well, with a group of guys, ten years on, and many of those who started with are back on their feet, many of them are married, and many have Jeff to thank for their very lives. Which relationships do you need to invest in, to put energy into? For some of you, you need to start a connect group and invest in many lives. You never know what's happening below the surface. We need to come in our time, our energy, and our money as well. I'm trying to make these memorable things. On an easier note, this is fantastically easier, uh, we have 80 youth. Can you believe it? 80 youth in church. Wonderful group of guys. And as of, actually one of them was, um, Um, and as of September uh, kind of newsflash we have known youth pastor and we have an unfinished quality space for the youth they're in a couple of rooms at the moment if you want to invest in those 80 youth give them just give to the final phase commit to it so we can hire a decent a quality a brilliant youth pastor and so we can complete the work that we began for them simple right Time, energy, and money, okay? Other things? It will cost you love. Sheryl Sandberg is the COO of Facebook in the States, and she is a renowned author. Now, she lost her husband in 2015. He was upstairs on the treadmill. I don't think he had a heart attack or something like that, fell down, broke his head, and just died, and she only found out hours afterwards and left behind her with her two children. It wrecked her, ruined her. Out of that became this book called Option B, a great book worth reading, and she writes... She writes this. She says, the absolute worst thing that someone can say to you if you've just had something traumatic happen is this. Let me know if you need anything, okay? It's like the worst thing you could possibly say to someone. I've said it myself so many times, I'm totally guilty of this. But you know what goes through that person's mind? What they think? They say, I don't know what I need. I'm hurting. And even if I did, even if I had the guts to call you, I would probably just be on the other end of the phone crying my eyes out. I have no idea what I need to know. It's not okay. And Cheryl says this, the best thing you can do for someone is something. Show them love. Drop a meal off. Drop some flowers off. Text the person. Say, hey, look, I know you're at work today. I'm around the corner having lunch. If you want to join me, I'm here. If not, that's absolutely fine. It doesn't matter what they say. Just offer practical love. The second thing it will cost you is oh, fifth thing even is peace. If I preach a good sermon, if I do well, if I please you guys, if you guys are smiling back at me, some of you will come up and give me a prophetic word at the end. I love that. Don't stop doing that. It's amazing. But has anyone given a prophetic word to the building manager or the building team after they've come out of the block in the toilets? Has anyone um, offered a prophetic word to someone who's just served you coffee? made your coffee, or looked after your kids? You know, we love prophetic words, and they're not hard to give, an encouragement, something you just heard from God, a verse that you've just given, and you won't actually have peace. If you're expecting to give one, you won't have peace until you've shared it. And you'll probably be utterly nervous when you share it. But don't you think they deserve it too? Don't you think every single one of you deserves it? What about the cleaner at college? What about the receptionist at work? Do you give them words, do you thank them? Do you go out of your way to bless them? I mean, on that note, don't be surprised if you're misunderstood. This is going to be the poshest thing I've ever said from stage, okay? But last Sunday, after service, I cleaned the river just out the back of our garden. Yes, that's it. <laughs> now I've said it. We have a river outside the back of our garden. It is absolutely amazing. And I just kind of go to it. But it gets covered with weeds, Okay. And so um, so two or three times a year, I have to come into the river and I basically have to spend all day picking all these weeds up, throwing them onto the big pile of stinging nettles and stuff like this. And it just takes hours, but it's so satisfying afterwards. And now I'd been doing this for hours, okay, fighting Haverie River as well. Now I had gotten mud, Everywhere. I mean, I was caked in mud. Arms were, you know, mud. Face was mud. Hair was muddy. Legs were muddy. Not only that, I'd put on some shorts. that were quite old and I had a little rip in it. By the end of it, I mean, I genuinely had a rip from all the way up there. I mean, if I undid my flies, it wouldn't have made any difference, okay? It, it was full-on hard work, okay? So um, i just finished. I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm proud of it. I'm ready to get up. So I was ready to climb up and, and just finish the work. And then Tara saw this uh, teenage girl at the, end of, at the other side of the river that goes into the park. And uh, she had this big bucket of water she was trying to fill up, and that wouldn't work. So she got this little bottle, and she was pouring it in. And Tara was like, oh, you can't. Just go and help her. Just go and help her. Oh, okay. So I picked up a purple bucket, because it was a kid's one. I went down and said, would you like some help? why are you collecting river water? And she said she got Suffolk lilies that need river water to survive, as you do. Um, this is St. Albans, after all. And, um, and so I, I filled up a bucket of water. Anyway, I carried this water with her back to the car, wellies, mud, and everything else, and ripped shorts. And you should have seen her mom's face when she saw me. <laughs> it was hilarious. She was like, you got someone to help. <laughs> anyway, she asked the best question I've ever heard. She says, um... So, uh, look at my ripped shorts and my mud. She goes, um, do, you, uh, do you live in the river? <laughs> you are gonna be misunderstood, okay? Just deal with it. 1 Peter three seventeen says, for it is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Number six, it will cost you patience. You know, you walk past the homeless man on the street, don't just throw a change in his cup or walk by. You know, Tara, a couple of months ago, it's all about Tara, she's amazing. Um, Tara, a couple months ago, um, was in town, it was raining, and she walked past this homeless guy, and it, you know, sometimes they're just in there, sometimes they just look really low, and she had a couple of kids, and she's like, okay, how am I going to do this? I'm, and she started to gather them, she was going to turn around and just basically talk to him, engage him in conversation, offer him some lunch. And as she turned around, after gathering him, she turned around and to her amazing, she saw someone from Vineyard. He's actually here now, I, I, don't know if, I won't embarrass him because I haven't seen him yet. Um, he t- she turned around and, and there was a guy from Vineyard who had knelt down and was basically engaging in a conversation with him. He was dressed in a suit in the rain and he was engaging in a conversation with him. Tara, I, you, wouldn't be any prouder than what you saw at that moment. But it costs you patience. It'll cost you some time in that. Number seven, it'll cost you a moment. So time, energy, money, love, peace, and patience. It'll cost you a moment. We had a phone call into the office, um, and uh, I just happened to be walking through reception, and someone handed me the phone and said, take this. I was like, okay, sure. You're a pastor, take it. Okay, okay, fine. And they handed me the phone, and they handed me the phone. They said something absolutely devastating. They said, there's a young girl on the other end of the phone who's got something tied around her neck and is about to kill herself. Here's the phone thanks and so I sat down and I talked to this girl it was just a moment and I spoke to her and I asked her what was going on and blessed she was able to talk she was talking freely she was in tears and I just my I just felt for her I had so much love so much compassion and I just sat there listening sat there asking questions I got her to take the thing off around her neck I said, why don't you come in? Just come in for a moment. Me and a, a colleague will sit with you. We'll just find out how you're doing. We'll offer you a cup of tea. What food do you like? Bananas. We've got bananas. Yeah, We'll figure it out. Andy, go and get some bananas. Um, and so she came in. And all that was was just a moment. You know, I found out that, um, that she'd been talking to the police about a number of issues, and they'd been fantastic. But they said, look, you know, if you've got mental health issues, you know, the St. Albans is massively overstretched. Why don't you call this number instead? And gave the church number. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. But it just took a moment to sit with her, to answer the phone, to give up whatever I was doing for an hour or two and sit in my office with her and my colleague and just hear how she was doing. She's not absolutely better now, but she's alive. And she's doing better. She's getting better and she's well supported. It just took a moment. She is struggling. There are other people struggling in your life. It just takes a moment. It may cost you a Sunday. You know, join a Sunday team. Don't wait to react when you hear that a team is in need or short of people. You know, the church is growing, and there's always more we can do. So join a team, whether it's welcome, refreshments, parking team. If it's kids, you know, go over there. Just like the disciples, you know, there's, uh, Maria and Marno are running around like crazy, Go and say, look, there's things you need to do that only you can do, but I can help you do the rest. So go and join a team on a Sunday. Do you know what it will cost you? One Sunday service a month. That's not much, is it, right? So do that. Join a, a fill out an involved brochure and join a team. Number nine, this is world well dramatic, it will cost you your marriage. Okay, let me explain. It's not actually going to cost you your marriage. So, I've already built up Tara, she's an amazing woman. She's also a very creative woman, okay? She gets distracted easily. She loves creating things, she's amazing at it. Sometimes that translates into things I'm not so happy with, okay? Now, I need you to hear me rightly on this, I'm not complaining. But, when I go home sometimes, and she's had a crazy day with the kids, sometimes she's swept things by the bin, but she's left them there because she hasn't had time to pick them up and put them in the bin. Or maybe she's kicked off her shoes in the middle of the room, or. Just had a shower and throwing the towel on the floor. You know, little things. Anyway, I walk around the house when I get home from work and I pick up a towel and say, Tara. I pick up the shoes, oh, Tara. Under my breath, of course. Don't want to be horrible. She's upstairs. Um, and I do this, I follow her around doing all this. And do you know what God said to me one day? Tara! God first said, Will you stop cursing your wife? I was like, oh my gosh. I'm totally cursing my wife. And so now I go around and I bless my wife because I sort of... Oh, there's shoes on the floor! Bless you, Tara. You've obviously had a long day. Oh, there's rubbish by the bin! Bless you, Tara. You must have got really busy today. Let me just help you with that. Do you know what? Genuinely, I hadn't told Tara about this, but genuinely she turned around and said, I feel really blessed recently. (laughs) It may save your marriage, okay? And number 10, it may cost you a moment, it may cost you a Sunday, it may cost you your marriage. It will cost you your life, okay? You see, there are some people that pretty much only you can reach. There are some hands that only you can touch, you can hold, you can comfort. There are some needs that only will resonate with you and you will see and no one else will. Do you know what that means? That means you're not here by accident. You're not here by chance. Don't react like other people and just say, okay, I'm done, I'm, I'm going to cross the road, I'm avoiding this, I don't want to get clean, I don't want to get out of safety. Act like the Good Samaritan. It will cost you your life, but it's so worth it. Let me give you an example as I come into close. Early Christians, they got it. In the first century, do you know it was not illegal for parents to take their unwanted babies who they couldn't afford to keep or they didn't want for whatever reason, down by the river in a basket, and the term was expose them, they would leave them there. The actual term was expose their children, that's what it meant. And the reason why it wasn't illegal was because parents weren't killing their children. See, what they were doing is they were leaving them to fate. And if fate would have it, that the child survives, then wonderful, so be it. There's obviously a purpose. But if the child froze to death, if the child was eaten by an animal, if the child rolls into the river, or if the child was taken by someone with evil intent, then that's what fate wants. You see, the early Christians didn't react to this. They didn't say, oh, well, someone else will do something about it. That's horrible. Or, I'll pray that the children survive. No, they would go out of their way, they would go to the edge. Of the forest. They'd go all the way to the, up and down the riverbank and rescue these children. They would bring them into their home, their small homes, even though they had hardly any room and hardly any food. And they would raise them as if they were their very own child. Why would they do that? Why would they sacrifice their lives, their comfort, for someone else? Because they knew that God had done it. To them, You see, however good or bad your life has started, at some point you were left to fate. If you were overcome by the elements, the stress, the heaviness of life, so be it. If you were devoured by those around you competing for attention, competing for roles, competing for jobs, so be it. It's fate, right? If you fell into trouble or if other people came into your life with evil intent and took advantage of you, So be it, it's fate, right? That's how the world sees it. You had a chance, you wasted it. But God refused to look at things that way. He refused to ignore us. He didn't say, oh, I hope they survive, or perhaps someone more nice will come to them. He didn't react, he decided to act. He came to the ends of the earth to rescue us. He gathered us up and rescued every single one of us from our fate, at his own cost, knowing that we can never repay him. What did he sacrifice for us? To raise a child as your own means that someone needs to go without. And this is the amazing thing. His son, Jesus, he chose to give up all that he had access to so that we could have it. He gave us everything that he had so we can have it. And instead, he took our place. He was subjected to the world. He was attacked by many. He was unwanted and unloved and constantly being taken advantage of by others, even to death. You see, that's what makes us different. That's what makes us holy. We don't react to the people's needs. We act like our Father acted towards us. We show our Father's love because the Father showed us His love. He has set us apart to be His children so that anyone who sees us Sees the Father. Could the band come back up? While we may be criticized for what we believe, he, Jesus, will be famous for how we behave. Would you guys stand? Just close your eyes. We're going to start worship in a second, but I just want you to pause for a moment. You have a brother in heaven, Jesus, who gave up his very life for you. It cost him more than we could ever pay. We thank you, Jesus. For that same love, for that same impetus, we go into the world to be different, to be holy. To make you known. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Let's worship.